Um, today's reading from the Word of God comes from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Acts 15, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate among them, or with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Allie, and I'm one of the pastors here at High Rock, and it is so good to be worshiping with you this morning. Before we begin, let's take a moment to set aside whatever lingering thoughts or feelings from this morning that may be floating around in your head that could be a distraction to you. Let's take a moment to quiet our minds and ask God to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be present with us this morning 
that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to teach us in your word. And that above all, our reflection today on your word would be glorifying to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've mentioned before that back in college, one of my favorite classes was Foundations of Youth Ministry. And one of the reasons I really loved that class was because there were only four students in the class, including me. That meant we had great discussions instead of being lectured to, and we could switch it up and have class over at our professor's house instead of in a stuffy conference room. We even had dinner with our professor's family as a class. Having a small class seemed awesome, until it wasn't. One day, only two of us showed up to class, me and Joseph. And on that day, by Joseph's nudging, we ended up talking about the role of women in the church. As it turned out, Joseph and I had very different thoughts on the matter. And boy, did I wish that we had a bigger class that day. Because as good professors often do, when our professor realized that we had opened a can of worms, he set aside the, le the lesson plans for the day and he said, let's talk about that. By which he really meant, you guys talk about that. And this is probably a really great place to tell you that I hate conflict. I hate debate and I hate disagreement, especially when it is about something that I hold dear. So as I was sitting there, and it's just the three of us in the classroom, my heart started to race. I got a lump in my throat that took away any kind of confidence I could ever project with my voice. I got nervous and clammy. I just wanted to run out of there. The conversation ended up going fine. There were no harsh words or disrespectful attitudes between us. But it took me a while to come down from that immediate stress response of being thrust into a disagreement. Your reaction to conflict might be a little less visceral than mine. And actually, I hope that's the case. But we all have our own reactions towards conflict and disagreement that have been shaped by the conflicts that we have seen, experienced, and participated in. The conflicts in our families of origin the conflicts in our workplace, the conflicts in our friendships or marriages, the conflicts we've seen in the news or in the fiction we love, and the conflict that we've seen in the church. And more often than not, our view of conflict is shaped by seeing unhealthy conflict and disagreement in those places. Unkind and untrue words being spoken to or about one another intentional disrespect, uncontrolled anger, not listening to one another, division, the end of relationships. But what if our conflict looked different? How might we approach, how might we think about, and how might we enter into conflict if our conflict was transformed? Today, we're continuing our sermon series, In Good Spirit, Transformation in the Book of Acts. Each week in our series, we're taking a look at how the Holy Spirit transforms everything about our lives and the world, from our hearts 
to our relationships, to our culture. Last week, Pastor Ethan talked, spoke about Pentecost and how the gift of the Holy Spirit changed everything for the community of believers. The Holy Spirit empowered them to do the work that Jesus had set before them and spurred them on to live in loving service to one another. This week, we're taking a look at the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit transforms our conflicts by taking a look at a serious conflict in the early church. If you have your Bibles or Bible apps, I invite you to turn with me to the passage that Joe read for us in Acts chapter 15. Luke, the author of Acts, wastes no time in telling us what the problem is. In verse 1, it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. These certain people from Judea were clearly Jewish believers, and these Jewish believers were going to Antioch, a city that had adopted Greek culture, to tell the non-Jewish Gentile believers there that believing in Jesus was not enough for them to be saved. These Jewish believers thought that the Gentile believers also needed to convert to Judaism in order to be saved. And circumcision was a sign of that conversion. For these Jewish believers, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant to them and to their ancestors. It was a sign of God's promise to be their God. And it was an important marker that they belonged to the people of God. And since these Jewish believers thought that salvation was for God's people, the Jewish people, they thought that the Gentile believers needed to convert to Judaism and be circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas did not agree. In fact, they passionately disagreed. Our text says that Paul and Barnabas were brought into such a sharp dispute and debate with the believers teaching these things. With our varied background of conflict, here might be where you expect the conflict to kind of go off the rails. Sharp dispute and debate. Maybe you grew up in a conflict-avoidant household, and you would expect the issue to be swept under the rug once the initial disagreement dies down, never to be talked again. Or maybe you might expect Paul and Barnabas to go around bad-mouthing the Jewish believers, telling everyone else, don't listen to them, they don't know what they're talking about. Or maybe even, those guys are bad people. Or maybe, from your history in the local church, you might expect for them to just divide the church. Have one church that demands a Jewish identity, as well as a faith in Jesus, and one that believes that faith in Jesus is enough. We've seen plenty of conflicts go off the rails from a passionate disagreement. But here, the believers actually do the healthy thing. Instead of separating or avoiding, they come together. Paul, Barnabas, and some of the other believers involved in the disagreement, they travel to Jerusalem to discuss the matter further with other elders and apostles. And when they're all assembled together, they all got a chance to state their positions. Some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees kicked off the discussion by restating their position. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now the Pharisees 
often get a bad reputation, often worse than they maybe deserve. So I want us to think generously of the Pharisee believers here. Yes, they are raising the question of what it means to be saved and who salvation even is for. But they spent their whole lives trying to follow the law. They were raised to believe that if they could just follow the law the right way, they would be right with God. Their identity of belonging to the people of God was wrapped up in following every letter of the law. So with a lifetime of this being ingrained in them, these believers naturally thought that following the law was still crucial. The elders and the apostles heard and discussed the Pharisees' position before the apostle Peter addressed the crowd. Peter also disagrees with the Pharisees' believers, but notice that he starts his address with brothers. In a time of disagreement, instead of addressing each side as if they are opposing teams, Peter addresses everyone, placing emphasis that while they may disagree, they all belong to the family of God. In marital or premarital counseling, a common piece of advice is that in arguments and disagreements, you're supposed to think of you and your spouse on the same team. It's not you and your wants pitted against your spouse and their wants, but instead it's you and your spouse working on the same team to solve the problem in front of you, to come to a solution together. It's a helpful way to reframe our conflicts because it removes the temptation to have to win, to keep score, or to shoot cheap shots at each other. Well, Peter's up on his conflict management tools because that is essentially what he does by addressing everyone as brother. He reiterates that they are united on the same team. If you've been in a church with unhealthy conflict, or maybe you're just really active on Christian Twitter, you may have seen addressing someone as brother or sister in Christ used maliciously. Unfortunately, there are some of those, some who use it to disarm whoever they're addressing, to make them seem really kind and loving, only to follow their greeting with an attack on that person's character or their dignity. This is wrong. Not only do our words matter, but our intention behind our words matter. When we address each other as brother or sister in Christ, we must do so like Peter, with kindness and love in order to highlight that we have Christ in common. Peter continues to highlight what unifies them by addressing what already unifies both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Remember that at the core of their disagreement is a notion from the Jewish believers that salvation is not for the Gentiles. It's only for the Jews. Therefore, the Gentiles ought to convert in order to be saved. So Peter highlights that both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers have been given the Spirit of God the Spirit of God to dwell with them, which they would not have received if they had not been saved. God cannot dwell in a heart that has not been reconciled to God. And this is Peter's proof that it is by the grace of Jesus that we are saved. Not by following the law, not by being circumcised, but by following Jesus.
Once Peter had said his piece, the assembly was silent and listened as Paul and Barnabas confirmed what Peter had said by telling them the amazing things that God was doing through the Gentile church. I love the emphasis that the whole assembly was silent and listened. How often in our disagreements and conflicts are we not actually listening to what the other person has to say? I'll out myself as guilty to that one. It can be hard, especially when disagreements are tense, to actually listen. Instead, we can find ourselves planning our next point or a clever retort instead of actually taking in what the other person is communicating. After Peter's emphatic points in favor of the Gentiles, though, the entire assembly, including the believers from the party of the Pharisees, they sat and were silent and they just listened. Finally, James speaks and confirms what Peter, Paul, and Barnabas had communicated by pointing to Scripture. Sure enough, the Holy Spirit has called to mind for James what the prophet Amos wrote, that even the Gentiles would bear the name of God. After respectful discussion and listening to all the parties, the council had come to a decision. Let's not make it harder for people to come to God than it needs to be. And so the council in Jerusalem sent a letter to the Gentile believers in Antioch telling them, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. After listening to each other, and listening to the Holy Spirit, the, coun the council decided that the Gentiles did not need to, hear, to adhere to the entirety of the law. They only needed to follow the portions that were out outlined for Gentiles living among Jewish people. And the Gentiles were so relieved and encouraged. Could you imagine? Four stipulations is so much easier than hundreds found in the law, and they were certainly easier than getting circumcised. Thanks. What a relief it must have been to have been considered the full weight of conversion and to be told that in the end, Jesus is enough. Through God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, these believers navigated an intense conflict, one with serious implications and in a loving and in an undivisive way. So how then can we also allow the Holy Spirit to transform our conflicts? Because church, conflict is inevitable. There's a saying that goes, if two people are always in agreement, one of them isn't thinking. When we're living in a community with people who have other experiences, other passions and perspectives, we are bound to disagree. It's just going to happen. And so the first step in allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our conflicts is not to ignore it. Now, as someone who's already admitted to being very conflict adverse, this is a challenge for me. It can be hard and scary and uncomfortable to recognize a conflict in front of you and to choose to address it. 
to choose to wade through that mess. But as someone who has tried the avoiding method many times, I can also say from experience that it never works. Whenever we shove our conflicts and disagreements to the side, without addressing them, they don't go away. They just sit there, and they fester, and they grow, until the same problem comes up again, and again, and again, each time causing more frustration and pain. And so we need to address it. Addressing our conflict as hard as it may be also shows the person that we're in conflict with that we care. That's actually one way to spot a relationship that is in serious trouble. If they no longer care enough about the relationship to work through their issues. Even though it may not always be done in the most tactful manner, when someone brings up an issue to us, it shows that they are invested enough in our relationship to work through the conflict instead of just ghosting us or letting the relationship fizzle out. And while that doesn't just guarantee that the conflict will be comfortable, it does give us hope. Because on the other side of working out an issue with someone is greater intimacy and understanding and relationship. The good news is that we never have to enter into conflict on our own. As believers, given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we never have to address conflict on our own. When we are scared or uncomfortable, we can ask and rely on the Holy Spirit to give us strength and peace. When we are unsure about how to handle conflict, we can ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and clarity. We never have to enter into conflict on our own, but we do have to enter into it. The second step in allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our conflict is remembering what unites us and reminding each other about what unites us. Conflict often causes us to embrace a stance of me versus you, us versus them. My needs and wants against your needs and wants. If we aren't careful, conflict pits us up against one another. But as we saw in our passage, that doesn't have to be the case. Peter led straight away with a reminder that all believers in the council were united through the work of Christ. Because they all loved and followed Jesus, they were all on the same team. The people of God, trying to love and serve the Lord the best they could. So often when we have conflict within the church, it's simply because we and the person that we are in conflict with are both trying to love and follow God in the ways that we think are best. And the ways that we think are best aren't the same as what they think. Just like with the Pharisees, they thought that by teaching others to convert to Judaism and be saved, they were loving and following God. And even though we know that they missed the mark a little on that one, Peter was able to see that he and the Pharisees had the same goal. When we can recognize that we have the same goal, when we can recognize that we are united by the Holy Spirit and united by our desire to follow Jesus, we can approach the conflict with love. We can approach the conflict with gentleness and patience and with a spirit of generosity towards each other. Sometimes it can be tough to feel united, especially when it feels like the other side isn't loving or following God at all. 
What if the conflict we see is when other Christians are being hurtful towards other people? Or if they're being greedy or ungenerous towards others who have less than them? What if they're looking out for themselves first and not being humble? Even in those moments, we are unified by the Holy Spirit. Even in those times, we both call ourselves followers of God. So in those times, we still need to approach each other as brother and sister. Even though we disagree, and even though we need to, may need to point them back to Scripture to hear how it calls us to act. Reminding ourselves and reminding each other of the ways that we are unified helps shift our conflict from me versus you with a need to win to us versus the issue with the goal of resolution. And lastly, through the Holy Spirit, we have the resources of other believers and scripture when we're stuck in our conflict. Paul and Barnabas did not stay in Antioch to debate the Jewish believers alone, but they went back to Jerusalem, where others who were more removed from the situation could weigh in, where they could offer perspective and point them to Scripture. Just as we are brothers and sisters with those that we may be in conflict with, we are also brothers and sisters with those who are not in the conflict and who also have the gift of the Holy Spirit. In times of tough conflict, it may be helpful wise and even necessary to get this perspective of another trusted believer and to get the perspective of the Holy Spirit that is dwelling within them on what to do, on what to try next, or even on how you guys are unified. Friends, we are bound to have conflict with one another. It is inevitable. Some of you may be even experiencing conflict with each other right now. But when we depend on the Holy Spirit and we enter into our conflicts remembering that we are united through Christ, our conflict doesn't have to be scary, painful, or divisive. Instead, it can lead to a further unity of purpose, encouragement, and greater relationship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the believers working out their conflict with the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that because you have given us your Holy Spirit, we do not navigate conflict or disagreement or painful and hard situations alone, but we always do it with your Spirit to guide and lead and give us wisdom. God, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.